everyone, and welcome back to Poem Peeps. Today we have another great Fellows Case Files. And as you know well by now, our goals with this series is to meet fellows and program directors from different institutions and dive into a really great case. Firf, are you ready for today? Yeah, yeah. Hey, Monty. Always. I, you know, I had a patient the other day uh, that was exactly like one of our Case Files episodes, and I felt very prepared. <laughs> I felt like I knew exactly what was going on. So these are maybe just remedial training for me, but I, I hope other people find them useful as well. And I'm really uh, excited to head back to your home state, Monty. I know. I'm so excited. I think the, the only thing better than being in Texas is doing another uh, great case files from Texas. So on that note, we're going to meet our two guests for today. Honored to introduce Dr. Mohamed Batar, who is a pulmonary and critical care fellow at the Houston Methodist Pulmonary Critical Care Program. He completed his medical school at Misser University for Science and Technology and his residency at Good Samaritan Hospital. Thanks for coming on the show today, Batar. Welcome to Poem Peeps. Um, thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. It's our pleasure. Uh, next, we have Dr. Deepa Gotour. She is an associate professor of clinical medicine at Wheel Cornell Medical College and an adjunct associate professor at Texas A&M. She's also the Pulmonary and Critical Care Program Director at Houston Methodist, and she is a sepsis and ARDS researcher, as well as a dedicated educator. We're really excited to have you on the show today. Welcome to Poem Peeps, Deepa. Thank you for the kind introduction, and uh, it's a pleasure to have uh, to be in this podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, yeah, of course. It's really our pleasure. Before we get started, as always, this podcast is not meant for specific medical advice. The views we express today don't necessarily affect those of our employers, and some details have been changed to make sure that this case is HIPAA compliant and protects the privacy of our patient. So that being said, Pitar, why don't you tell us about this patient that you met? Of course. So our patient is a 44-year-old male who presents with three months of progressive shortness of breath. His story started when he was diagnosed with COVID uh, three months ago, which was uh, mild at that time. Since then, his shortness of breath has only gotten worse. In the intervening time, he received home treatment with steroids, antibiotics, and he had no response to it. He represented to the same hospital three months later after not being able to carry out his daily activities, and he was found to be hypoxemic with an SpO2 in the 80s on room air. He was admitted at that time, and his uh, CT chest reported non-specific patchy ground glass bilateral pulmonary infiltrates with coarsened interstitial markings that could be related to COVID-19 pneumonia or atypical infection. At that time, his COVID PCR was positive, and he was started on IV antibiotics for presumed uh, superimposed infection, and uh, was given dexamethasone and was ultimately discharged home on uh, oxygen at two to three liters per minute. Thanks so much, Batar, for going over that. And, you know, we haven't had a case start with much imaging right up front, but I'm really glad that we do today because I feel that it's as common that we have patients that we're seeing as consulting teams, both inpatient as well as outpatient. And one of the first things that we have presented to us is some imaging. It's one of the first things that we do is kind of scroll through their current imaging as well as old imaging. So you have a sense or an impression of the patient before you meet them and get to ask some directed questions. So even though the imaging seems to indicate that this may be some form of viral pneumonia, the history of three months of symptoms argues against this all being a COVID infection. It's definitely important to get some information from him, you know, two things regarding the pace as well as the progression of his symptoms and why he came in at this specific time. You know, I think one thing to consider, it's possible that he had COVID and was recovering, and this is a new infection that set him back. 
But if it really was progressing during the whole time, that seems a little bit unlikely. So I definitely worry about a post-COVID uh, sequela, such as organizing pneumonia, pulmonary embolism could be on the differential, fibrosis, or even a secondary infection like COVID-19-associated pulmonary aspergillosis or CAPA. Yeah, I totally agree, Monty. You know, I, I think there's co- the COVID and the COVID history, especially now when a lot of people are vaccinated and a lot of the diseases are more mild than we were seeing in the beginning, it really can complicate these types of presentations. And, and I sort of think about a few different things that may not just be COVID. Like in this case, this could just be a new COVID and he had COVID before and he's never fully recovered. But, uh, you know, a few things that I also want to be wary for in these patients, you know, some patients have had an ongoing pulmonary disease and then they got diagnosed with COVID incidentally and we blamed it all on COVID and we've missed something. So I've had a couple patients who actually ended up having a real myositis associated ILD or things like that. And it's unclear if the initial COVID infection unmasked something like some sort of molecular mimicry that we don't understand, or was just a misdiagnosis in the beginning, you know, for covering all their symptoms. So that's one thing I think about, you know, the second is that uh, an ongoing COVID PCR positive, is this like a reinfection or is there some reason that they have had recurrence of their old infection um, or have never cleared it? So, you know, I know uh, there's been a lot of studies about patients on rituximab and how they can have persistent positives. And those positives can actually flare up if you look at the cycle threshold and you can get symptoms again. Um, now, we can get more history about this patient. They could have an underlying immune disease that's not acquired. But, you know, another thing to sort of think about. And then finally, you mentioned some sequelae of COVID, like pulmonary embolism. People can also get myocarditis. You know, uh, a CT scan with ground glass opacities and interstitial markings certainly always can seem infectious, but fluid can really look like anything, right? And so if the patient had some sort of cardiac diagnosis after their COVID or independent of that, you know, I always just want to make sure that I'm not uh, confusing an infectious etiology with something that is more fluid-based and thinking about their filling pressures. So, you know, I think we have some great thoughts already. Um, so, Bitar, can you tell us a little bit more about this patient and sort of what happened next? So, two weeks later, he presented again to another hospital with progressive increase in shortness of breath to the point where a few steps would almost make him pass out. Um, I'll expand a bit on his history so that we have a good background on him. He is diagnosed with hypertension, uh, obstructive sleep apnea. His only medications are atorvastatin and metoprolol. He has a 20-pack year smoking history, but he quit four months ago, around the time when he got sick. He drinks around 10 beers a week. Uh, He has no recent travel. He's lived in Louisiana all his life. Um, Notable exposures is he had recently found mold at home and was uh, scraping the walls to clean everything out. He worked for an oil company. He was exposed to multiple fumes and chemicals with variable protection. Um, his vitals on presentation at that hospital, his blood pressure was 140 over 90. His heart rate was 91 beats per minute. He, his respiratory rate was 25 breaths per minute. And his pulse oximeter at that time read at eight, on eight liters of oxygen, it read at 92%. His physical exam was notably remarkable for being cachectic, but he was not in a lot of distress. A rapid shallow breathing, and he had diffuse coarse crackles on lung auscultation. Uh, he has diffused muscle wasting, no rashes, and remaining exam was unremarkable. Yeah, that's great. There's some really interesting information here that I think we have to delve into. You know, before we do, I just want to emphasize like how hypoxemic this young man is, right? So, you know, he's tachypnic, so he's hyperventilating to try to help us. And even with that, he's 
in the low 90s on eight liters. And so for a young person in their 40s with no other health comorbidities, this is like really concerning to me. Um, and to the point where, you know, he was discharged on two to three liters of oxygen. And I think we do this a lot, especially in older patients, you know, they're in the hospital for a while, we want to get them out. And so we'll send them out on a couple liters. But when a young patient has to leave the hospital on oxygen, I get really nervous about it because, you know, this is someone who's at risk to progress. They have a long life ahead of them. You don't want them to be oxygen dependent this young. But we have, uh, you know, a lot of info here. Uh, so I think we can start thinking about some other diseases as well. So Adipa, I'm curious what you think at this point. Yeah, I think this is a great time to hone our differentials so that we can hop into some more focused and hypothesis-driven uh, inquiry. As Christina mentioned, you know, the chronicity of uh, his symptoms makes uh, an acute viral pneumonia unlikely. And we have seen patients after acute COVID infections, and they go on to develop post-COVID organizing pneumonia or even fibrosis. And that could still be a possibility in this case. Atypical pneumonia, I think, can present like this, and we should definitely consider endemic fungal infections like histoplasmosis or uh, blastomycosis. And in the right scenario, probably even TB could present like this. And I also think his occupational history uh, raises a suspicion, you know, for an occupational lung disease such as pneumoconiosis or hypersensitivity uh, pneumonitis as well. His mold exposure puts him at risk for aspergillus lung disease too. Finally, he has diffuse muscle wasting with bilateral interstitial findings on the CT chest from his previous admission. And this raises suspicion for, as you mentioned, Dave, uh, myositis-associated ILD. This is of really high concern to me at this time since it can be rapidly progressive and also muscle wasting in an otherwise healthy young individual is uh, very atypical. Yeah, thanks so much, Deepa. And I, um, I really loved how you physical exam findings as well as, you know, important history to really broaden the differential. And you mentioned some great ones that we should be considering. And at this point, you know, I'd definitely be thinking broadly about the diseases you mentioned. And, you know, for workup with this with these types of patients, right, I think we're all going to agree that we really need to take a systematic approach to what we're going to be sending, because uh, there are so many tests that, you know, we can send on, on patients, but what makes the most sense. So definitely would want to send a comprehensive autoimmune panel at this point. And I would also include a myositis and a hypersensitivity um, panel as well. And I remember discussing this um, in our ILD episode where uh, Dr. Sonia Danoff mentioned, you know, there can be great varieties in these types of panels. So really sending it to a lab who has expertise in that um, is going to be essential. Um, I think for for one thing, the, the Mayo Clinic myositis panel is one I think a lot of PCCM physicians are familiar with. For infection, I would definitely be sending broad tests. So I would look for a systemic disease such as HIV, hepatitis, or TB, DEPA, as you mentioned. And finally, if you could tolerate it, I would really be interested in getting at least a BAL to rule out infection. And um, if safely done, you know, potentially adding transbronchial biopsies that can increase the sensitivity for inflammatory lung disease. And I think finally to round it out, as Firth mentioned, you know, myocarditis or an underlying cardiac etiology that hasn't been um, identified yet would want to get an echo in him. Yeah, Monty, I you know I love the the thought process in your approach, and and especially being very specific and intentional about it. I, you know, a lot of times I feel like with these patients, we somewhat know where they're headed. A lot of these patients are headed for high-dose steroids in their future, um, but I think that they get used without a firm diagnosis a lot of the time. And I try to really trend against that, right? Because if you know what this is, it may really change your management. You don't want to give high-dose steroids this was a occult fungal infection, but also like there's very different upfront therapy for a vasculitis associated ILD versus a you know, myositis associated ILD. So uh, trying to get more info, I think is super important. 
Subhadar, did he get uh, any of these tests and did he get any treatment based on what, what was found? So he was admitted. He underwent a comprehensive autoimmune and uh, infectious, including a fungal workup. All of this was negative at that time. Uh, he underwent bronchoscopy with a BAL and transbronchial biopsy. Uh, the cell count was unremarkable at that time in the BL and the biopsy, uh, transbronchial biopsy read as atypical epithelial cell clusters, inflammatory cells favoring a viral or an atypical infectious process. What was interesting was in the, um, in the biopsy result, they mentioned uh, indeterminate for malignancy and there's a high degree of ATP in the cells that were collected. At that time, he was started on pulse steroids, IV antibiotics, IV diuretics, uh, he had no response. Uh, he kept on getting somewhat uh, worse. So he was given a diagnosis of post-COVID ILD and was transferred to our institution for further care. Thanks so much, um, Batar, for sharing that additional information. And I think, you know, kind of what we were talking about, but definitely, you know, concerned and worried about this patient given his recent history and, you know, the additional diagnostic findings that you just shared with us. And the biopsy results are interesting. It sounds like there's a robust inflammatory response, but no cultures that are positive thus far. And I remember for if we were just in a, in a recent episode where someone, you know, was talking about the lung being responsive and it's steroid responsive, antimicrobial responsive or diuretic responsive. So malignancy is um, atypical to present in such a diffuse fashion, but certainly can happen. So this could be, you know, an advanced adenocarcinoma with limingitic spread or hematological malignancy can present in this fashion as well. And really diffuse metastasis could look like this if there's been a lot of spread to the lung. Um, but for this much disease um, that you've been describing, Batar, I'd be thinking of the ones that really spread to the lung commonly, which are you know, more so colorectal, head and neck cancers, urologic cancel, cancers, as well as breast and melanoma. So, Batar, what did y'all do when he made it to, to you and your care? Since he's been, since he was broadly covered uh, with steroids and antibiotics, we were trying to make a, a diagnosis because it still wasn't very clear what's going on. Uh, An echocardiography done here was normal. Uh, we repeated his autoimmune panel, hypersensitivity panel, uh, fungal and a viral uh, serologies since he was on prolonged steroid therapy. Um, all these were negative at that time. We planned for a bronchoscopy with BAL and a transbronchial biopsy, and we tried to obtain the cytology slides from his previous institution, but it was going to take uh, a long time uh, for us to get these results. To get the best yield uh, in case we had to do a biopsy, we opted to repeat his CT chest. We wanted to do the biopsy, but we were concerned about his high oxygen requirements. And we were trying to avoid subjecting him to a procedure that may compromise his respiratory status. His repeat CT chest uh, showed extensive patchy bilateral airspace disease with extensive interlobular septal thickening and ground glass. He had more confluent uh, consolidative opacities in the posterior right middle lobe measured at around 2.4 into 4.4 centimeters. There were also small effusions bilaterally. Thanks, Batar. And I think this is a really impressive, you know, CT imaging, and we'll definitely share this online for our listeners to also view. Overall, you know, this patient has a diffuse lung disease process, and it is important to take into account, you know, as we kind of talked about earlier, the tempo, the radiological pattern, as well as the clinical context for each person. And, you know, this presentation could help narrow our differential diagnosis to diseases that are associated with predominant reticulation, 
septal thickening, and then you mentioned ground glass, but notably without any type of traction bronchiectasis or honeycombing. Also thinking about a consolidated opacity, potentially being a nodule or a mass for us to also consider. Yeah, we definitely will post these images. I encourage you all to go on our Twitter or website to look at them. It's some of the most impressive interlobular septal thickening and like pure reticulation that, that I've seen. Um, and the absence of those classic fibrotic signs that you mentioned, Monty, really is helpful, especially in someone who's had symptoms for, for three months. So they've been progressing for some time, but we still don't see those. Um, and I, I totally agree that, uh, you know, when you see dense consolidations like that, you know, are, are these really nodular consolidations uh, that have been progressing over time? So I can sort of hone our differential some. So, Bajar, you know, you had this patient. I think you guys took a really uh, thoughtful approach. I agree with you. You want to get tissue, but you want to make sure that you're being deliberative and that the patient can tolerate it. So I'm sure you must have thoughts about, you know, this CT pattern that, that came back. Uh, what did you think about and what did you learn about as you were reading about this patient and trying to help them? In a patient who presents like this um, and he has prominent lobular thickening and reticulation. So with such prominent lobular thickening and reticulation, I'm really thinking about the lymphatics. Disease of the lymphatics usually involve interlobular uh, septum, fissure, and the pleura, and also uh, involves the bronchovascular bundles, and usually demonstrates thickening of these structures. The interlobular septal thickening and the bronchovascular bundle can be smooth, uh, regular, or beaded, depending on the disease type affecting it. Uh, the major differentials over here are usually pulmonary edema, sarcoidosis, or a lymphangitic spread of his tumor or a lymphoma. Systematically, uh, thinking about the CT findings, I think it is still important to talk about pulmonary edema since it is just so common to see. Uh, pulmonary edema is actually the most common entity among the diseases of the lymphatic system, and it usually presents with smooth interlobular septal thickening. In general, uh, when we think about pulmonary edema causing this pattern, we look for associated history and associated imaging findings. The history would include left-sided heart failure, which leads to elevated filling pressure, and also classic signs and symptoms such as weight gain, edema, or even symptoms of flash pulmonary edema. For imaging, we would often expect to see alveolar filling with fluid, diffuse ground glass opacities, pleural effusions, and maybe cardiomegaly. While this is really common in this case with a normal echo and extensive imaging findings and the chronicity of the symptoms, I think this diagnosis seems less likely. Thanks so much, Deepa. And I totally agree that we need to think about such a common driver first. And Batar, I love your thought process of thinking about this both physiologically as well as anatomically. I think one thing just to add to your list is potentially considering idiopathic interstitial pneumonia, which can look like this, such as LIP. And you mentioned sarcoid, and that can definitely do this. That's usually may start with an upper and middle lung distribution. And of note, sarcoid tends to demonstrate a beaded or irregular appearance of these structures, you know, reflecting more of the granulomatous nature of sarcoid itself. We'd also look for lymphadenopathy since this is so commonly seen. Advanced sarcoid, though, usually has some fibrosis, making it somewhat less likely in this case. Yeah, I think we're really like diving in and narrowing this differential now. I love this, and Pitar, I love focusing on lymphatics. You know, I think. Um, when we read 
CT chests, I, I don't know that we always take a systematic approach as the radiologists do. And I think they really think about the lung lobules. I actually pull up that picture all the time on rounds, you know, the airway and the blood vessel coming in and then this lobular tissue with the lymphatics in the, in the septum. We'll, we'll post a picture. We've talked about it before on the show. Um, and so thinking about what can affect those. You know, I think we all had malignancy a little bit inserted into our thought process based on those path findings, but that's what path findings can be helpful for. Uh, but Monty, you mentioned this before that malignancy can certainly spread along lymphatics. And so it's something for us to think about. You know, lymphogenic spread of a tumor can do this. You can get smooth or beaded thickening of the septa and the bronchovascular bundles and all those structures that Batar mentioned. You know, lymphoma adenocarcinoma of the lung that's spread really advanced, but metastatic adenocarcinoma too. And those common malignancies that you mentioned that really love going to lung tissue, Monty. And somewhat malignancy, we had the path and I'm somewhat thinking about this as well, because you mentioned that the fibrosis you would normally see in a progressive interstitial lung process is not there in this case. So I'm wondering if it's some sort of primary cellular atypia that's growing along the Totally, Firf. And I love um, that you bring out the lobule. I'm going to start using that more. I think that's so important to see and to remind ourselves. But, you know, coming back, I think cases such as that we're discussing today are really complex. And it's so important to obtain, you know, all the imaging studies available and compare them together. You know, and I know many of us at uh, various institutions, we present cases like this in an ILD multidisciplinary meeting with other specialties there, expert chest radiologists, pulmonologists, thoracic surgeons, and oftentimes pathology to help guide further decisions. Uh, so, Batar, I'm wondering what other tests ultimately were sent on this patient? So, we were luckily able to obtain uh, all the CT tests that he had done in the previous institutions. And uh, in addition to the new one that we did in our institution, we presented uh, his history findings as well as the imaging findings in our multidisciplinary conference. Radiology was still considering atypical pneumonia, but they were very concerned about the nodular opacities on his CT chest, in addition to the reticular thickening. They were concerned about uh, nod the nodular opacities. They have been growing over a period of time along the CTs, which is why they were considering malignancy as the number one differential on this case. Given this recommendation, we completed the imaging with a CT abdomen pelvis, and surprisingly, that showed peritoneal carcinomatosis with ascending wall thickening. Even though his effusions were small, we underwent, he we performed a right and a left thoracentesis on separate dates. And uh, the cytology from them revealed adenocarcinoma consistent from metastasis of a colon primary. The surprising fact was he did not have any lower GI symptoms at all prior to his presentation. I really want to dive into the, and talk more about this, about a patient who came in with no colon symptoms and where to go. But before we do, I, I got to highlight something you said that's subtle. You said you did thoras on different days. Just so everyone understands that, right? Like the big complication of a thora is a pneumothorax. So you don't want to do a right and a left thora and then all of a sudden come back and someone has two pneumothoraxes. So um you know, for uh, learners listening, if you're going to do bilateral thoras, you should at least have an x-ray after your first one, make sure that the lung is up before you start going messing around with the other side. It's a, it's a really nice, subtle point that you made. Thanks, Verf. And yeah, definitely a great point. And Batar, just going back 
this is, you know, the ultimate diagnosis was just unexpected in a patient who's so young. And, and as you mentioned, not coming in with any GI symptoms, and definitely not where my mind was going initially with this case uh, presentation. So you can see why the diagnosis would be delayed based on the patient's age, as well as presenting symptoms. And Deepa, how do you think about cases such as this? And do you have any thoughts where the final diagnosis really veers off from where you initially started with the patient? Yeah, I think uh, this case demonstrates an example of a cognitive error and as well as a no-fault error. Cognitive errors are problems that arise due to faulty data gathering, inaccurate clinical reasoning, or even faulty verification. Whereas no-fault errors are those where illnesses is silent or masked or presents in an atypical fashion. This case is a fine example of a no-fault error due to settling on a diagnosis too early and eventually discovering relatively aggressive colon cancer despite no GI symptoms at all. I think clinicians strongly favor their initial diagnosis and often stop searching for additional possibilities. This tendency leads to several cognitive errors collectively referred to as premature closure. This includes factors such as anchoring and confirmation bias, uh, which fosters actually the tendency to favor a confirming evidence over a counter evidence that might actually exclude that diagnosis. A solution to, the, to this is to improve metacognition, understand the pitfalls of heuristics, and promote active open-mindedness when presented with a complex case such as this. Oh, man, that was unbelievably well said. I could not agree more. You know, I think we're very interested in medical education here at Palm Peeps, obviously. Part of this podcast is to think about this sort of diagnostic reasoning, and a lot of this really resonates with me. Um, you, you know, I think a lot about that sort of type one and type two thinking that people reference of sort of pattern recognition and habits. And then when you convert to thinking a little bit more critically about the pathophysiology and the steps and how you're making your diagnosis. And yeah, 40 year old comes in after COVID infiltrates dyspnea, like no way is colon cancer on my initial list, but then things start looking funny. Right. And so you have to know about this, do that metacognition be able to say that anchoring bias is a problem and then try to confront that. So uh, really, really well said and an ongoing problem for all diagnosticians. Well, it's a great case, a really good teaching opportunity for our listeners, uh, unfortunate diagnosis, and I hope the patient is going to do well. We like to sort of wrap this up with a learning or a takeaway point from everybody. Um, you know, I think in this case, I'm going to go back to thinking about lymphatics in the lungs. We don't talk about them that much, right? Uh, but there are imaging patterns and there are diseases where that is the primary thing that can give us a hint of what's going on. And so always remembering your basic anatomy of the lungs, basic structures, and, and what pathophys could affect those. Monty, anything that you took away? Yeah, I was just, I was also going to say lymphatics, but I'll add lymphatics and lobules um, to definitely be cognizant of when I'm looking at imaging going further. Deepa? Yeah, I think for me, it is mainly for uh, avoiding pitfalls of premature closure during clinical decision making and giving consideration for reasonable alternatives and uh, atypical presentations of a disease entity. Yeah, I would like to add to that. Um, this patient, what he taught me was if, if the disease process is not responding as expected to the, the indicated treatment, then usually it should be time to start looking for alternatives aggressive, especially in a young patient like this. Thanks so much, Deepa and Batar, for joining us today. And one of the reasons Firf and I love doing these fellows' case files is to really hear about programs on the episodes. So I'm hoping that you can share something interesting about Houston Methodist as well as the 
pulmonary critical care medicine fellowship there. I actually had the opportunity to rotate in the cath lab at um, Houston Methodist when I was in nursing school before I, when I, when I, sh- I initially thought I wanted to do cardiology. Um, so I love the institution and the location and the scenery, but I'm hoping that y'all can share some additional items that learners may be um, interested in hearing about the program and anything else you want to share about Houston. Uh, Batar, I'll start with you. So uh, a, a very strong suit of our program is that we have a very wide breadth of cases. This is one of them. I had to choose from a couple of cases to be able to present, and this was one of the interesting ones. All specialties, all subspecialties over here work in, in harmony, and it's always fun working around with them. It's a very friendly environment. And what do you think, Dr. Gutur? Yeah, I mean, hey, uh, this is our uh, pulmonary critical care uh, program, and uh, we want to train and we train fellows to mature as strong academicians, uh, clinicians, researchers, and uh, educators. Our fellows receive excellent training in advanced lung diseases as well as critical care um, uh, diseases from the leaders uh, in the field. And uh, some of our fellows' achievements include, uh, you know, grants, innovations, and publication, which I'm extremely proud of. I think it is a great response responsibility to train the future leaders in the field. And I'm humbled and honored to serve in my role as a program director at Houston Methodist. And thank you so much for having us. And don't forget the food. The food in Houston is the best. (laughs) (laughs) Another reason that we have to go on a Palm Peeps grand tour of the United States. That's uh, on the menu sometime. (laughs) Well, this is a great case. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you for telling us about the program. We really enjoyed it. This episode was written, produced, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor. Uh, The music is original music by Eric Rogers, and we'll see you back here in two weeks. Have a good one.